Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. thank you for the chance to gather together and we thank you for a chance to be shaped by your word as we get into these um, kind of crazy and, and fantastic images. I pray uh, that our eyes would be directed to you and to your son Jesus. I pray um, that we would be able to see um, the systems of the world that are, are distracting us and pulling us away from you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be um, your faithful witnesses in this world today. Send your Holy Spirit and use this time to, to shape us and to transform us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Daniel 7 as, is a background for chapter 13. You probably picked up on that, right? That Daniel 7 is, is a strong background for chapter 13. And in Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream that these four beasts arise from the sea. For Daniel's time, those beasts um, are representing different kingdoms, he's told later on. And the kingdoms that those most likely um, point to are Babylon and Persia, which, by the way, uh, by the end of the book of Daniel, uh, Persia will then be the world power, followed by Alexander the Great, and then um, most likely the Seleucid successors. Um, so these were the world powers that were kind of taking over things. In that last group, um, there's somebody named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was um, an especially horrible um, ruler of the world. His uh, Epiphanes basically means it's, it's a revelation of, of God. And so his name is basically, I'm God. So he was, you know, humble and uh, had trouble with his self-image. But he, he really put himself forward as that and ruled in that sense and so when you have the ten horns and then you have the arrogant little horn that misplaces three other horns that's that's pointing to Antiochus Epiphanes um, he decided that uh, the Jewish people ought not to be able to be Jewish anymore and he was particularly nasty in enforcing his new rules and so if you read in Maccabees which is part of the Apocrypha, which is found in, uh, in Roman Catholic Bibles. Uh, it's uh, books that happened in between the Old and New Testament that some parts of the Christian church recognizes, parts of uh, Scripture. <clears throat> um, uh, Protestants typically do not, although we see them as helpful books, we just don't see them on the same level as Scripture. I don't know if have, have any of you heard of the Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. A couple of you, okay. So this is one of the books of the Apocrypha. And in uh, 1 Maccabees, Chapter 1, verses 59 to 60, it tells about Antiochus Epiphanes. It says, according to the decree, they put to death women who had their children circumcised. So why would they do that? Yeah, because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. If you uh, remember, um, if you were here Sunday, remember during, during the sermon, we talk, I talked about, um, uh, talked about two women who were martyrs. And they were martyrs because they wanted to be baptized into the Christian church. And one of the things I said was, remember this, uh, baptism has, has been seen as a threat um, to governments. 
Uh, so it's a sign of the covenant. And so here we have, um, according to the decree, they put to death women who had the children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mother's necks. This is the oppression that God's people were under. Um, which, by the way, this is, this is the way the world worked. Um, the Assyrians used to impale people alive. So take a big, long stick that was kind of sharp, jam it up you, lift you up, let you slowly slide down and die while people saw you so that they would think if the Assyrians come to our place, we need to just surrender instead of fight against them. This is why, by the way, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. It wasn't because he was afraid of dying. It's because they were horrible people and he didn't want God to have mercy on them. So I, I think it's important to understand that. It was uh, brutal and, and violent. Um, and so the things that, uh, that we see going on now sometimes are, it's the way the world has been. It's the way the world has been. Anyway, so that's that, uh, the, the little arrogant horn. Now, as you had that gut reaction to that, it's, it puts in the setting of what's happening in Daniel 7, that you have this horrible persecution of God's people going on. And then in the heavenlies, they arrange the thrones, they bring in the seating, and the Ancient of Days comes and sits on his throne to judge. This is a big deal when, if you circumcise your kid, they kill you, your family, the one who circumcised you, and hang the infant from your neck. If people are that brutal, you're ready for judgment to come, for things to be set right. And the Ancient of Days sits down, and then one comes like the Son of Man in glory in the clouds. And this is the Messiah, and the Messiah is the hero to come to the rescue of the people who are being brutalized. They are being brutalized. And so the Messiah comes in the clouds to, to set the kingdom right. So that's, that's the background from Daniel 7. And with this background setting, the beast is judged before the throne of the Ancient of Days, that final beast. Um, and this Son of Man comes and his kingdom has no end. That's the background story from which this vision draws. So I want to start with uh, questions of what are the beasts? Um, what is the mark? What is difference or what are the harvests and what is the difference just trying to break up these sections into something that would kind of help make sense so I want us to think first about what are the beasts and we uh, find out in in chapter 13 well actually it kind of we begin with the very end of chapter 12 the last verse of chapter 12 says then the dragon took a stand on the sand of the seashore so the dragon takes a stand what did, what was the dragon doing at the end of chapter 12 he was making war on the people of God. Making war on the people of God. So the dragon takes a stand on the sand of the seashore to make war against the people of God. So the, the image that we have is this is the dragon striking out against the people of God. And the dragon is who, by the way? Satan. So Satan is taking a stand. And so this, uh, this is, in, in this context, what happens next is Satan's war against the people of God. 
Okay? So in, in 13.1, we find out uh, this beast rises out of the sea. What is the sea symbolic of, by the way, in biblical imagery? Chaos and evil and that sort of thing. And so this, bee, this beast uh, rises up from the sea. And then we find out the beast is described in different ways. It re- has different aspects of the beast from Daniel 7. Did you catch that? So it has parts of a leopard, part of a bear, part of a lion. Well, these are the beasts that are described in, in Daniel 7. Which means that it, what it's saying is that same evil force that's behind these four empires that come up is the same evil force behind the one that they're dealing with in Revelation. It's the same move. It's, it's the dragon on the sand of the seashore making war against the people of God. And so this beast rises up from the sea. It's connected in to Daniel 7. Who would the beast be for the first readers of the book of Revelation? Rome. The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was threatening the people of God. What did the Roman Empire want you to do? To worship Rome and Caesar and these other gods. What would Rome do to you if you didn't worship Caesar? Kill you or exclude you from economic stuff. Or the citizens would say that you're not being a good citizen and they would shut you out socially. There was some price to pay for not falling in line with the way the beast was working. And this idolatry that was going on with the beast is, is just orienting your life towards Rome. It's okay, you can worship whoever you want, as long as you remember that the one who brought you peace was Caesar. What that's saying is the ultimate God is Caesar, or Rome is the ultimate God. And you can worship your little gods here and there, however you want. But the ultimate God is Caesar. And so that's what's going on for the people who read this. So as they hear about this beast, um, that's what's going to come to mind for them. Um, With the the symbolism, the head is going to be the seat of being, kind of uh, uh, who who they are. Um, The horn is a seat of power. The crown would be authority. And the name, the blasphemous name that's written on the heads, has to do with the nature of what's being named. And so um, the blasphemous names on the head is, is saying that this beast at its very nature is uh, blasphemous against God or is um, oriented contrary to the purposes of God. Well, this makes sense, right? Because um, newsflash, Caesar was not the one who brings ultimate peace to the earth. And so to set yourself up and against God, that's blasphemy. Blasphemy isn't, isn't something simple like stubbing your toe and you use the Lord's name in vain. You ought not to do that. Blasphemy is actually a, a bigger thing. Against the nature of God. Deny, I mean, it's, it's this kind of deep sin of denial of God for who God is. Which is why cursing using God's name is part of it. Because if you recognize God for who God is, you don't use his name Loosely, like, it's just, it wouldn't be appropriate. I mean, it's just not right. Okay. But it's bigger than, blasphemy is, just, is bigger than that. Um, so then this, uh, as you mentioned before, the head had received a death blow, a mortal wound that had been healed. 
which is kind of weird. What does this mean? Um, what do you think the head of the Roman Empire would be? Caesar, right? So Caesar would be like the head of the Roman Empire. Well, there was a, um, when Nero, when things were going poorly for Nero, Nero um, took his own life with, uh, I guess it was suicide by sword to the neck, which is um, terrible. And so one of the things I want you to look at is page, I think it's page nine in your books. And it's the timeline. And if you can find Nero, Nero was 54 AD to 68 AD. And what happened after Nero died? It was letter B. Four emperors in a year. What does that tell you about the stability of the Roman Empire? It was way off, right? And so there was this, looked like a mortal wound to the head, and you kind of wonder if the beast is going to fall. But then what happened after that? It was okay. And so then people think, well, who is like the beast? Who can destroy this beast? It's going to keep going. There was also a, a myth or a rumor that Nero was going to return um, it was going to return in some sort of eschatological judgment. So there was this kind of fear of, of Nero either rising from the dead or that he'd really run off and was hiding and was going to return uh, with armies and, and that was going to be the end of Rome. And so you get this, um, almost this mimicry of, of the resurrection and return of Christ. And so this picture of the beast with the mortal wound uh, seems to be pointing towards that. So that's on... This is an image that works on multiple levels, though. So on one level, we see Rome, and we see it operating that way. But there's another level, because the beast is really a manifestation of who? Satan, of the dragon. Now, when, what if it really was a mortal wound? One of the professors I listen to says, look, wounds are either mortal or they're not, right? If it's a mortal wound, that means what? You're going to die. <laughs> There's not like a kind of mortal wound. It's a mortal wound or it's not. And so um, it, 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 he argues that it appears to have been healed. Well, if you're looking at Satan, when, when was a mortal wound struck to Satan? Christ died and rose again. And Christ died and rose again. Now, does it look like Satan continues on okay? kind of does. But you still see that mortal wound, that death has been defeated, that Christ ascended into heaven and is coming again. It's mortal in that it's coming to an end. And so I think it works on a couple levels there, where it's pointing to the beast as being um, the Roman Empire, but also pointing to the beast as being an outflow of, of Satan's activity. And in doing so, then it points to the mortal wound that's, uh, that's struck by Christ. But the whole earth, earth marvels, and when it talks about the whole earth or the inhabitants of the earth, remember, this is kind of like technical language talking about the people who are living in rebellion against God. 
um, when it talks about the inhabitants of the earth or that sort of stuff, it's, it's talking about the people who are, um, who are citizens of fallen Babylon, people who are in rebellion against God. And they marvel, um, and they marvel at the beast. They say, who is like the beast and who can defeat him? What is the source of their marveling then? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Do they think the beast is, is wonderful and loving? Powerful. It's the, the power of the beast. So it's, almost, it's a fear of the power of the beast. And so that's where they marvel at it. It's not that they're won over. It's not that they think the beast is right or anything like that. It's just this beast is too powerful. Who's like it? Who can beat it? And so they give in. Okay, who's like the beast? The ten horns and seven heads um, is like the dragon from chapter 12. Um, There's a mortal wound that's been healed. And then uh, it it mimics scripture. If you look at Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who is is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Um, We hear that. You've you've heard that uh, probably in different psalms or different spots where where, uh, scripture will say, Who is like you, O Lord? And here the people say, who is like the beast? And so it's this mimicry, it's this um, kind of mocking of, of good. Who can defeat him? Who can defeat the beast, by the way? Yeah, we know the answer to this, right? Jesus and the angels. In fact, we saw in chapter 12 who can defeat the beast, because the one who defeated the dragon, Jesus and the angels. Remember Michael, it didn't even take Jesus, like Michael kicked the dragon's butt, right? If I remember correctly from chapter 12. And so here there are two perceptions of reality. And this is what I really keep trying to push in with you, push with you for the book of Revelation. Is that there are alternative perceptions of reality. One of the perceptions of reality is who is like the beast who can beat him? The the world is one. Bad guys win. We just might as well give in. And then the alternate perception of reality is. Who is like the Lord? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And, and, and so there's one perception of reality that looks and sees um, the beast in power. And there's another perception of reality that, that understands that God is seated on the throne in heavens. And that's the lamb at the center of the throne. There's two perceptions of reality. And so um, it's, it, it's important for us to, I think Revelation is pushing us to see reality differently. Um, let's see, and then is given, the beast is given authority for 42 months or three and a half years. So what does that bring to mind for us? Persecution. So the beast is, so does that mean a literal three and a half years? I'd say no. It means that there is a time of the persecution of God's people. And so the beast is persecuting God's people. And so the systems of uh, this particular manifestation in Rome are persecuting God's people. Was Rome persecuting God's people? Yes, absolutely. All right, after the sea beast comes the land beast, who's also later called the false prophet. Whoops. And the land beast has um, some interesting things. The, the, The land beast leads people to worship the first beast. Um. So if you think about what was going on in Rome, what sorts of things were in place to lead people to worship Rome and Caesar? 
if you remember in the cities they had, remember they had altars? They had uh, a whole emperor cult going on. They had priests. And if you belonged to a, a trade guild, what did they want you to do? Worship the emperor. Right? And so you have all of these things that are a part of their society that draw you into worshiping the beast. If you don't worship the idol, and, and uh, in chapter 13 here, what happens when, when the land beast goes to the trouble of making an idol, and then if you don't worship the idol, what happens to you? You get slain, you get killed. Okay? And so, um, because of that then, is, is that a reality for the people in the first century Asia Minor? For some of them, yes. Um, if you remember, again, in one of the letters it said, an Antipas, a faithful one, a witness, that had, he had died because of his faith in Christ. Um, this land beast is interesting, again, that we get this mimicry. One of the things that happens is, is evil mimics good. Say there's a theological reason for this, which would be because evil cannot create anything in and of itself. It always has to twist or destroy that which is good, or be the negation of that which is good. Um, a way to understand this is uh, death is not a thing; it's the ending of life. Like you need to have life before you can have death. If you think a lot of uh, just evil twists good things to wrong purposes. That's how almost all sin works. Gluttony. Is it a bad thing to eat? No. But what does gluttony do? It takes food and puts it up too high as an idol. Usually has an emotional attachment to it. I don't know. But I'm an emotional eater. I'm probably the only one in the room, but I'm an emotional eater. And, and so what, what happens with that? You, you try to meet an emotional need. You try and find a savior through um, cheese and crackers, which are just wonderful. And that's, right? But we've all got... this. Is, so that's how evil works, is it takes a good impulse and twists it. Yeah. Anyway, so there's this mimicry. Um, the, the land beast um, can do wonders like bringing fire from heaven. Who does that sound like? Yeah, like Elijah, or like the two witnesses, right? So it's kind of mimicking, mimicking that. But it does that just as a, as a sign, almost as a trick. Um, the, the, the land beast has two horns, like the two witnesses. But it has horns that are like a what? Sheep. What does that bring to mind? Like the lamb, right? Like Jesus. Yeah. So it's like the lamb, like Jesus. And so it's like, it's, it, so, and then you get this creepy thing, right? It's got two horns like a sheep. And then what's his voice sound like? Dragon. And so here you have this force of evil that is presenting itself, masquerading as a savior, as a messiah. But when it speaks you find out it's not out to save you at all. It's the voice of the dragon. This is a really disturbing mental image, isn't it? 
again, when, when we think of how to interpret Revelation, and we think, well, I wonder when that's going to happen. So I would ask you, are there, is there anything in the world today that presents itself as your Savior, but really is not out for your good? There's a lot of things like that, right? There's a lot of things like that. Where it looks like it's out for... I, <laughs> I mean, just sometimes I wonder. So, if you go to the gas station and you can buy a 142 pack of uh, Bush Light because you like the taste of beer or whatever, it is, you know, what what is this drinking? And then get in your car, yeah. And if you're in the right state, you can have a drive-through liquor store, right? And but what it is, I'm fine with social drinking, but the gargantuan cases of Bush Light are probably not for people who savor the taste of a good beer. I'm going to throw out there. So what is it for? I'm just guessing. Well, yes. <laughs> so what is that doing? It's, it's presenting itself as a good thing. But it really has the voice of the enemy behind it. It's all sorts of stuff like that. It's all sorts of stuff like that. that presents itself as a savior, as a voice of the enemy behind it. Yeah, the devil plays right into that, right? The devil plays right into that. I, I think a lot of times, a fascinating book, if you've never read it, is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and it uh, kind of gives some really um, powerful insight into how evil can work, I think especially in our setting. Um, and yeah, it's uh, our, our rationalizations. And our, our, whenever we lean on something else to save us. Um, the, the beast makes this idol, this icon is the Greek word, and makes it appear to have life. Here's another powerful thing, though. Do idols ever appear to have life? And our idols, the things that we follow, always promise to give us life. Like if your career is your idol, the, the promise is if you finally achieve president of the corporation, then you will have respect you will have value as a human being. You will be adored. All of that stuff. It's that promise, right? And so what, what do people sacrifice for the sake of their career? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we all have different ways stuff gets to us, but idols work in that way. And, you know, we have sacrificed so much to our idols. So much to our idols. Because they promise us life, and they always fall short. They always fall short. Yeah. I think that's I, I think the permitting language there is 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 a word to people who are being persecuted to say, while it is not good. There's nothing outside of God's control. Yeah, ultimately, God will bring this to an end. It's only handed to him for now. Yeah. And that's an important part. And uh, it's an important thing for us to remember as, uh, you know, living faithful lives can, can be a challenge. And sometimes it, just, sometimes it just seems like the bad guys win. And so it's important to remember that God is ultimately in charge. There's lots of ways that's portrayed throughout 
uh, the book of Revelation, one of them we just talked about in chapter 12, is it wasn't even that God had to do hand-to-hand combat with the dragon. It was one of the angels, right? Like, Satan, and it wasn't even like if the devil was going to win against not even God. It, the devil was going to lose, and he just took a bunch of stars down with him. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not an even battle. There's, there will be an end because God is ultimately in control. Yeah. All right, so let's see. This beast then represents the lifestyle that incarnates the worldview of the first beast. So this beast, the second beast here, is the one pointing towards the lifestyle of the worldview represented by the first beast. So the first beast is this beast um, that's got the heads of blasphemy, a, a way of, of seeing the world that denies God being God. And then the, the second beast then is kind of enacting that worldview, living out that worldview. This is what it looks like. It is, it is the worship of the beast and the inner orientation towards the beast, worshiping something other than God as God. And when we worship something other than God as God, we begin to lose who we are as humans. Has anyone found this out through personal experience? When you worship something other than God as God, you start to lose who you are. And so that sort of thing, worshiping something other than God as God, includes idolatry, includes hedonism, which is the seeking after pleasure, Luckily, not something we have trouble with in our country, but other people do, and we need to pray for them. Materialism, another problem that other countries have that we're fine with. Um, right? But as we chase these other things, these other things that are saying either the pleasure is the most important thing in the world, stuff is the most important thing in the world, whatever other idol it is is the most important thing. Any of those things are blasphemy against God. It's denying God's place as God. So the second beast then makes the image of the first. So the second beast leads humanity to develop values, structures, and dynamics of life that image the first beast's radical rejection of God. And it comes out as the prevailing voice of culture. That was kind of a neat interpretive move that Dr. Mulholland did because it said he, he... gave the beast, or he gave the image a voice, right? And so what comes to mind then is, like I said, in, in that time there would be, they, sometimes that would happen where they'd have you go in and there'd be a big idol of some sort and they'd have a, somehow a long tube or contraction to make the idol talk to you and so you get this, like, wow, that's really cool, special effect and uh, felt like the God was really working. That's coming to mind, but what uh, Dr. Mulholland was saying in, in that particular thing is, the second beast in leading us to worship the first beast is, is creating these uh, structures of, of the way we order our life to live out a blasphemy against God, to live out a way of life that denies God being God. And in doing so, then it's this prevailing voice of the culture, the voice of that image that comes out that we listen to. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I think Revelation is such an important book for us. Not because we're trying to figure out what's going to happen if the European Union does whatever, but because we need a call to be faithful right now. Like, we, like me, like all of us. 
because um, I think one of the tricky parts of this, if you think of the beast as these systems, then it's a system that we've been born into. And it's hard for us to see things differently. I think one of the reasons that um, short-term mission trips impacts people is because they end up spending uh, some time in a culture that is vastly different than our own. And then when you return home, you see our own culture differently. And some of the things you wouldn't notice before, you notice now, and you start to wonder, should we really value that as much as we do? And, and so I think that as we kind of read this stuff, like if, if these um, systems and structures in place around us that you just kind of swept into it. And the call of Revelation is to call, call God's faithful people out of it. Not in the sense that we break off relationship with neighbors, but that our values and understanding of ourselves in the world ought to be so markedly different that we are literally like a fish swimming upstream. We'll have to get into maybe a little bit of that application later, but it's, kinda, it's, it's a lot to think about. I think it's important for us to think about it. Um, So I would argue that these beasts are active now. It's not a matter of us waiting to figure out when the beast is going to come. These beasts are active now. And they were active then. Because the the people who first read this, they would have seen the beast as Rome. And the, the land beast as the imperial cult. So I'm very certain of that. And so, building on Daniel, Daniel's saying that anything behind these big emperors is the same power behind it. That's why he morphs the characteristics into the one in Revelation, which tells us that that there is um, an evil power at work behind the broken systems of the world. That ought not to be news to you, though, right? Like, you know that if you think about it. Paul says our, our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers and principalities. There are things that are twisting this world for evil. And the, this beast is a, a manifestation of that, is a picture of it for us to think about. Um, and to think about what it means, and to realize that when you go against the beast, what happens? It comes at you. And which raises... Two things. One is it gives us the expectation that maybe Jesus was telling the truth when he said, in this world you will find trouble, but fear not for I have overcome the world. And then the second thing, it ought to raise a question of, if I haven't found trouble, am I being faithful? If the world seems all peachy king, I have no problem with the world's values. Then you have to wonder, am I really being faithful to God or have I bought into the beast? So this uh, vision was given to alert its readers of the real dangers in the world around them. And also the hope that's found in Christ and Christ alone. So that's the, the, the beast. So then that gets us into the question of what is the mark of the beast? And this is another um, image that functions on two levels. One is a critique against um, the empire, a critique against Caesar. So 666. Um, yeah, there it is. So 666, so um, if you're going to watch the Super Bowl, how do you know 
what Super Bowl number it is. Roman numerals. It's frustrating, right? X's and L's and B's and I's and all that. Um, the reason that is is because numbers are, are uh, Arabic. We, we, they literally didn't have numbers. And so for numbers, they would have letters that equaled numbers. Well, for uh, Hebrews, they would have, um, in their alphabet, each letter would stand for that particular number. So Aleph would be one, Beit would be two, and, and so on and so forth. And so um, what you could do is you could take somebody's name and uh, put it into Hebrew and then add up the numbers of their name and get some things. That's, uh, oh, is it Gematria? Gematria? So if you take um, Caesar Nero his name and trans- transfer it into Hebrew numbers that adds up to 666 in Greek. Um, or people spoke Latin, and if you translate it into Latin, it'd be 616. There's an interesting thing that happens. I, don't, I wonder. So in your Bibles, if you could look in your Bibles, I'm curious if this is... It's uh, chapter 13, verse 18. And does anybody have a little footnote at the end of their verse there? And if you do, what does it say? Yes, other ancient authorities read 616 which means all of the weird stuff of if your fast food order turns into 666, you should have really been afraid of 616 as well, just to creep you out, right? What that is, and this is kind of helping you learn how to use your Bible, they don't have like a single copy of the Bible that just kind of landed on somebody's desk and they just printed them off. They've got manuscripts. And so they collect these old manuscripts and as... There's a, there's a couple manuscripts of Revelation or of parts of Revelation that in this spot have 616 instead of 666. So then the question raises, well, which is the original writing? Which is the original one? And then why is that 616 in there? Well, um, in the area that's in Asia Minor, they would be more... Uh, Greek speakers, and so if they were to translate Caesar Nero, Nero Caesar, into a number, it would be 666 in Greek. But what happens when they keep copying the writing and sharing it with people to the West, where they spoke more Latin? Well, in Latin, it didn't add up to 666. What did it add up to? 616. So some scribe undoubtedly tried to help out and add in the 616 so that the Latin speakers would understand that this is pointing to Nero. Okay. So the, um, in all likelihood, uh, it, the original writing was 666. But this textual variant is interesting because it helps point us to, um, most likely, I think, what John was looking at, was that this number was pointing to Nero, who was insane and persecuted Christians. And so this number is pointing, but it's not just to, to Nero, because what does Nero represent? Rome. He's, he's the Caesar of Rome. And so now this mark, the 666, you can kind of think of what it represents. 
But then what does it mean? Or what's going on? Um, it was Mark, where was the Mark had on people? Forehead or the right hand? Okay. So now it's important to understand for the Jewish set of images, what does the forehead mean and what does the right hand mean? Um, because again, this is dealing with the Jewish set of images. Well, the forehead. If you look at Exodus 13.9 or Deuteronomy 16.8, you're supposed to have the covenant of God on your forehead. If the holy, the holy priest, um, the high priest, sorry, had to have holy to the Lord on his forehead in Exodus 28. Or a negative example is Israel in Jeremiah 3.3 3 is said to have a harlot's forehead, which would symbolize idolatry, right? So there's something about the forehead that symbolizes not only your relationship with God, but also your seat of perception, how you see the world. Do you see the world as the covenant people of God? Do you see the world through the eyes of idolatry? The forehead, then, is the seat of perception, how you see it, your worldview, worldview. The right hand, when it says that God's mighty right hand will save, is God right-handed? Does God have hands? It's, it's God's way of, it's God acting. It's the right hand denotes the action or the behavior of the person, your lifestyle, your actions, your behaviors. So this mark is not, we're not talking about some sort of literal mark or tattoo or chip. This is a, this is a good news, bad news scenario. Good news is it's not a tattoo that you're going to get. The bad news is it might be something you already have. It's a lifestyle. It's a worldview. Do you see the world according to the way of the beast? Do you live your life according to the way of the beast? Like, that's really challenging. What if your lifestyle can be a lifestyle of blasphemy? Do you ever live your life as if God is not God? Well, the answer for all of us is yes, it's called sin. That's why we repent. But if you have a consistent and persistent lifestyle of that, what's the counterpart to this for God's people? Do they have the mark of the beast? What do they have? In, in chapter 7, or again in chapter 14, Yes. Yeah, if you look at chapter 14, I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. How do they see the world? Through their relationship with God. How are we supposed to see the world? Look, if you look, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Who created us? God. Why were we created? To worship, to be in relationship with God. And then we were given a job from that relationship with God to be God's image bearers to creation. What happened when we broke our relationship with God? Sin, and it broke everything else. And so now you've got these two tracks of, of kind of perception. You can see the world through the brokenness of your sin where you get to be God, or you can have that relationship with God restored through Jesus Christ. 
that image of God is being repaired in you. And the name of God written on your forehead. The seat of your being. The seat of your perception. Your worldview. How you understand the world. Does that make sense? This is a picture. This is an image that's supposed to, it's supposed to challenge us where we're at. And I know if, like if the government comes to put microchips in, be concerned for a lot of reasons. Like it's not like if there wasn't the book of Revelation that you shouldn't be concerned if the government's putting microchips in your hands. <laughs> right? I mean, that's like big brother stuff anyway. We don't need uh, Jesus to be a little concerned about how that goes. What scripture says that? I'm trying to... And that scripture doesn't come to mind, but I would say that there's this, it, it, there is this intimate relationship between us and God, between us and God, and he holds us in him. Yeah, if you, find, if you find that, let me know. Yeah. Any other questions about? So again, I think for the mark of the beast... One of the things that's important is it's in, it's in contrast to the seal of God, to the name of God. What protection does the beast provide those who are sealed? From persecution. And persecution might mean like physical persecution or it might mean what else? Monetary, economic. What can't the people do who don't have the mark on their hands? buy or sell, right? Look, we don't have to wait to some future time to where there are economic consequences to living faithful lives. Right now, if you say something and are put on the news, you might have a Twitter storm against you and people might boycott your business and you're done. That's today. Right? And so, um, faithful lives are going to have kickback. I'm going to have economic kickback. Um, and, and what protection does the lamb provide? Eternal life. Eternal life. So the call is, let's see, uh, in chapter 14, verse 12, for example, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, for those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Why are the saints supposed to endure? What's coming? Jesus is coming. It says it again in, in chapter 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Revelation doesn't, um, it doesn't paint this, uh, I don't know, this warm, fuzzy picture of follow Jesus and everything will be okay in this life. Follow Jesus and he will take care of you for eternal life. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Where's my pen? Isaiah forty nine sixteen. Your, law, your uh, names are engraved on the palm of my hand. 
That's good, yeah. <laughs> I think that would show an intimacy and it also show a, a way of God's faithful uh, provision and care. Yeah, I think that would be similar, yeah. Yeah, no, we're not, yeah. So the promises of God are these promises um, to help you endure. Help you endure. Which, by the way, the, the book of life, whose book of life is it? The Lamb's book of life. And do you notice the, the way the Greek reads on this is really um, kind of uh, interesting. Let's see. I think it's verse 8. Um, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. See, the NRSV translates it different. Does anybody have in your translation on, on 13, verse 8, um, the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world? What translation is that? NIV. So NIV has, that's the proper Greek order. This is, there are actual differences in translations. So the Greek order has the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Just as a quick aside, so it's not the case that God, God created, said it's good, and then humanity sinned and God thought, oh, what do I do? I need to have a backup plan. What should we do? I'm really angry. Let's kill Jesus on the cross. And it's like a backup plan. That's not, that's not what it is. Because before the foundations of the earth. So what that's telling us is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth, the cross reveals who Christ is. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's self-giving, sacrificial love. The cross is not a reaction to our sin. The cross is a revelation of who God is. And that's where it gets really confusing because we, we would think that since God is bigger and badder and stronger, and if someone fights against him, he would just like fight harder. But instead, that's not what we see. We see a lamb that was slain. And that's confusing. But again, I'm going to suggest there's different realities. There's the reality of the fallen world, but we're called to see things through the lens of the kingdom of God which is that God is revealed through the sacrificial, self-giving love shown in Jesus Christ on the cross. Which is in contrast to the beast. So we rebel against God. What does God do? Sends his son to die for us. You rebel against the beast. What does the beast do? Send someone to make you die. Notice the contrast. There's a Lord of Lords that is willing to die for you. And then there's a Lord that's willing to make you die for him. All right. Um, so are people sealed by the Lamb now? Yes. Yeah. So when we do baptisms... You may have noticed, so I took anointing oil. Anointing oil is a sign of the Holy Spirit. So why do I anoint the foreheads? It's a sign of the Spirit of God anointed on the forehead. 
which is what Scripture tells us what happened. Some quotes from Dr. Mulholland that I thought were really interesting. So, uh, in regards to the mark of the beast, whenever our being rejects God as revealed in Scripture from its frame of reference, it has the mark of beast on its mark of the beast on its forehead. So, whenever our being, who we are, rejects God, whenever our value system, our economic structures, our social dynamics have no essential reference to God as God, then we've constructed in our world an image of the beast. We have incarnated in our individual or collective life the nature of life without God. So we have the mark of the beast on our hand, is what that one's supposed to say. Um, yeah, our value systems, and we've already, I've already talked before, I talked last week about, um, you know, if we have this hedonistic lifestyle where sexual pleasure is God, then that, that leads us to view other people as objects for our own pleasure. That's degrading to people. So that would be a value system that has no essential reference to God as God. Um, when we have economic structures that value people not as partners in uh, community, but rather as potential dollar bills, then we have an economic structure that has no essential reference to God as God, because we're denying the image of God and others. Um, and then this uh, last quote, which is fascinating. Sometimes our slide into Satan's rebellion begins not with a rationally constructed argument against the existence of God, but with a single small act that undermines a God-referenced way of living. This is talking about the mark of the beast on our right hand. Your lifestyle matters. I'm not saying that, that um, anybody's beyond the forgiveness of God. Um, but perhaps what you do between Sundays matters. And it, it's how are we living into um, the salvation that God has given to us. Next question is, what are the harvests? So we're going to look into chapter 14 now. In chapter 14, we have two harvests. The grain and the grapes. So there's this white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. So who is this? Jesus. He comes with a sickle and a golden crown, and... um, the angel cries out to use your sickle and reap. What do you think, uh, what do you think harvest is symbolic of? What's that? Taking home the saints. So there's uh, judgment and redemption. Would be, well, it was, so there's a harvest. When he harvests the wheat, when Jesus harvests the wheat, this is good. This, this is judgment of bringing home the saints. What's the next harvest? The next one's not wheat. What is it? Grapes. Did you get the sense that was a negative one? <laughs> okay. And so you have two harvests that are going on, but I, I would argue they're two, they're two sides of the same judgment event. Two, two sides of the same judgment event. This is, uh, I, I would argue this is a picture of the final judgment. Um, this is giving you an image of it. Don't think of Revelation in terms of kind of chronological order, like after 12, whenever that happens, then 14 happens shortly after that, and it's the judgment, and then what do you do for a couple chapters until 21, 22? It's, it's, here's a picture of the judgment. Why would people, and think about it this way, 
if you are one of the first people to receive this letter, these, these visions, and it's, it's a, either a struggle to be faithful because you're facing persecution, maybe you're even in a church where one of your own church members has been killed for not worshiping Caesar. Imagine how that would impact us. That would shake us, wouldn't it? Or imagine that you've got a lot of families in your congregation that are just, they're scraping to even just have enough to eat because they don't worship Caesar, and so they're cut out. You're facing persecution. And then there's this promise that there's going to come a harvest, and Jesus Christ himself will take you. And then imagine if you're one of the churches like Laodicea where you think everything's hunky-dory and, hey, this world isn't that bad and you've just kind of gone along with it and we show up to church sometimes and, and have kind of bought into the idolatry and we worship down at the Caesar worship hour and that's not a big deal either. It's like, leave us alone once we do it. And, and then you hear that there's going to be a harvest and it's not going to be good. See, for the people that are in this situation where there's persecution and, and temptation to, to follow idols, this is an important reminder of the deeper reality of things, that what you see now isn't going to last forever. So the wheat is, is reaped, um, is the faithful being harvested. It ties into the first fruits that's been brought up. Uh, Matthew 13 talks about the wheat and the tares. So we have this imagery of, of this good harvest. The grapes then are gathered, and we get a clue that this is going to be bad because the angel that sets us into motion is the angel that has the authority over fire. And what does fire tend to symbolize a lot of times? Higher, uh, hell or, or judgment, right? So it's this, this judgment, this uh, purifying fire, and he sends out, uh, we've got to gather the grapes. And so those who are unfaithful who have done evil deeds, and etc. Let's find that. Reap for the... Let's see. Let me, let me find that. Um, oh, I can't find it right now. But anyways, those, those folks are, are um, gathered up, and then they're placed into the wine press of God's wrath, and we get the blood for many miles and up to a horse's bridle which again is disgusting. Where was the wine press used? Outside the city. Where was Christ crucified? Outside the city. In Hebrews 13, 12, it says, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify people by his own blood. One of the things I want you to think about is what exactly is this imagery um, pointing to. And, and one of the things that might be going on here is, is it possible that the winepress of God's wrath is the cross of Christ? Like the, the definitive event, event of, of judgment is the cross of Christ. And now we're waiting for it to play out, to be fulfilled. I'd say this makes sense because the cross of Christ is the pinnacle event of human history. And it's the cross of Christ that um, figures out where you fall. And so, for the cross of Christ, it either represents for you the blood of Christ shed to cover your sins in his salvation, 
is the good harvest, or the cross of Christ represents the, fulfill, the, the, um, the full manifestation of humanity's rebellion against God. Because what is sin? It's rebellion against God. If you're rebelling against God, what are you going to do God, to God if you get a chance? You're going to kill him. And so the cross of Christ shows exactly how awful and broken humanity is. So the cross of Christ is either the event of your salvation or the pronouncement of the judgment of your sin. It's either the good harvest or the bad harvest. And then at the end of the age... Um, that's how things are sorted out. Where do you fall with Christ? What do you, what do, you do with Jesus? Um, by making... Oh, oh so then uh, in chapter 14, verse 10. Or I'll start with verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them crying with a loud voice. Those who worship the beast in its image or receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So this is uh, those who are buying into the fallen systems of the world, those who have the worldview following that, those who are living out the blasphemy. They will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. It's a pretty picture, isn't it? Well, if you think about what makes the wine of God's wrath, we find out a little bit later. How's the wine of God's wrath made? by crushing the... the it, it, so think of it this way. Their own evil deeds kind of make the grape juice that turns into the wine. Does that make sense? So what is the, the punishment, or what is the judgment, I should say, that God gives? You get the fruit of your own rebellion. This is actually found in Romans 1 as well. Um, it, it, that the wrath of God was shown in this way that God handed them over to their own passions. This is, um, when I talk about sin in church, a lot of times I'll, I'll say, sin is us wanting to be God. What happens, and when you reject God, if God is the source of all goodness and life and love and justice and all that stuff, what happens when you reject that? You're left with all that's not that, all the negative stuff, death and darkness and all of that. What happens if God ever looks down to you and says, fine, Andy, you can have your way. You can be God of your life. Andy's doomed. Absolutely. That would be the worst thing to happen to me. And so, um, but that would be me drinking the wine, the fruits of my own rebellion, wouldn't it? That'd be drinking the fruits of your own rebellion. And so think about what this harvest metaphor does. This harvest metaphor paints, paints kind of this um, longer picture. The nature of the harvest is simply a natural consequence at the end of a process of maturation, Dr. Mahon says. So you've got, you've got something growing and then you harvest it. So doing judgment as a harvest um, kind of points to the importance of discipleship. Judgment isn't some kind of simple, arbitrary thing where God just says, ah, how about this? The judgment that's shown here is there's a harvest, the end result of this growth that happens. So when we say that, you know, you're saved, you have eternal life in Christ, and that eternal life starts now, what that's talking about is 
what if your life in this world matters? What if your faithfulness matters? And God is shaping you through this life and growing you into something more that's going to be harvested at the end. That changes how you face difficulties because every difficulty you face, you've got a choice. Am I going to trust in myself or am I going to trust in God? And every time you trust in God, what's happening to that wheat? It's growing. Okay. And, and so this picture gives us kind of a powerful way to look at how we live our lives in faith in the world today. And it would give the people who first read this a powerful picture as well. Because they're either going to drink from the wine or the fruit of their own rebellion, or every bit of persecution they face when they are faithful to Christ, it matters. Something is growing that's going to bear fruit. Um, this, so uh, this idea of the harvest having two outcomes, did you read Isaiah 63? That, the, that was the wine press and... <laughs> Somebody looks out from the city and sees this big guy coming with his robes drenched in blood. And who is it? Oh, it's the Lord. This is terrifying. (laughs) Well, in that, in Isaiah 63, 4, it says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year for my redeeming work had come. Notice that uh, in the time of judgment you have, when when accounts are set right, there's going to be consequences for the faithful as well as the unfaithful. All right, what is, okay, so... Last one is, what is the difference? There's some strong contrast here. As I said, the evil mimics good. Um, whoops. Must be I didn't put the contrast in. Oh, there we are. There's a contrast of those who worship the lamb versus those who worship the beast. Those who are sealed by God versus those who are marked by the beast. The contrast of the wheat versus the grapes there's also a contrast of prayers rising with incense versus the smoke of their torment. Contrast of being before the Lamb in praise versus being before the Lamb in torment. Did you notice that the, the place for those who were in torment was before the Lamb? Kind of disturbing, wasn't it? The way to think about that, I think that makes the most sense to me, is if we were made to be in, the, in relationship with God, if we have given ourselves over to be in relationship with God, then being in God's presence is heaven. If we insist on being our own God in the presence of God, what is that experience like? It'd be, it'd be this distance, but it'd also be in the presence of the holiness of God, which would be, should be hell. And so it's uh, two different experiences of relationship with God depending upon... Uh, depending on our... our relationship with God. Um, let's see. The suffering on earth versus suffering eternally. Those who are protected by the lamb versus those who are protected by the beast. Uh, Dr. Coaster writes, every person belongs to someone. The only question is whether one bears the name of the true God or the name of the counterfeit God. I mean, this is incredibly powerful. We all belong to someone. We've all got a mark. The question is, which one? Who do you belong to? You belong to someone. And if you belong to God, what are God's intentions for you? They're good. If you belong to the, to the devil, what are the devil's intentions for you? 
to consume you. Yeah, what does the thief do? The thief steals, kills, destroys. Um, let me kind of pause there. Any questions as we get up to this point? I want to get into... Um, we talked a little bit about uh, the intolerance of... Um, or the persecution that comes from the beast. If you don't follow the beast, those who do not worship his image are killed. Those who do not take the mark are not allowed to buy or to sell. And then we remember what happens to Christians in Asia Minor. If they um, reject worshiping Caesar, they could be killed physically, or they could be cut off economically, or they could be cut off socially. There's the intolerance of the beast. Our context in the United States of America is, is a relativistic culture. We're a postmodern relativistic culture, which means that we've, we've got this concept that every idea is kind of equal. Everybody's got their own perspectives. All, all, there's, no, there's no ultimate truth except the fact that there's no ultimate truth, that all truths are relative. So you can kind of worship whoever you want as long as what? You pay your tax. Well, that's, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? Because, how different is that from Rome, by the way? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, and societally it's the same way. That um, you can believe whatever you want as long as you do it someplace else. And what happens as you try to live your faith out more and more in the public square? Well, you're a, a I don't know, short, yeah, small-minded, holy roller, zealot, all the, all the stuff. Which... Granted, some people act like jerks, and I'm not going <laughs> to back that up. But, but sometimes it's trying to say, well, what if there is such thing as truth? What if Jesus really is the way to God? Well, if you say that today, what's, what's the kickback? How close-minded? What about all these other people? God's response is, I love all those other people. I want them to know Christ. Um, so we live in this, this context where um, there's kickback for living faithful lives. Um, there's economic pressures if you live faithful lives. It, well, it, or just, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, if you try to... So, one of the things that I, I keep kind of pushing you guys on is, is politics, just because why not? But... Um, what if the system that the world has set up is different than the way we ought to look at things as Christians? And what if the categories are off? So what does it mean, for example, to be pro-life? And, you know, typically as a political category, pro-life means uh, legislation against abortion or the funding of, uh, of an organization that provides uh, abortions and not mammograms, no matter what they say. So what does it mean? Well, but how come you have a political party then that'll say we're pro-life in that way, but then is um, pro-war? And does pro-life extend to more than just the unborn in the womb, or does it extend to how we treat just people in general? But then you've, you've got an, another president who comes in and says, I'm going to do it differently, and then uses drones to kill people. 
and I'm going to say, at the end of the day, maybe, maybe the Republican or the Democratic Party do not represent what we ought to think as Christians. Maybe they're, ca- they've, you realize what they've done, right? They've taken every issue and they've divided it. And then whatever they are, we're the opposite, right? And they've got a whole set of issues where whatever they are, we're the opposite. And who picked those? They did. What happens if I agree one over here, one over here, and then neither of them over here? Well, it's a two-party system. And, and at some point we say, well, maybe, maybe we ought to not, maybe we ought to consider how we participate in that system. Um, and maybe we ought to realize that to a purely political system, um, we just represent a way to get paid. A third part, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, um, I think the first step for us is to realize that the sort of questions we wrestle with are not going to find well-defined answers in the system that is in place right now. Why is that? Well, because these systems are not shaped by us. The same beast that, that has run things forever is the same beast that puts together these big systems now. I'm not saying that every, every politician is sold out to the devil is not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that. What if you're trying to be an, if you're trying to be an honest politician, how, what's your future? What if you went into office and said, you know what? I'm not going to do fundraising. I'm not going to sell out to big interests. I'm going to vote my conscience. You know what will happen? You won't get in office. The party will cut you out. Your own party. And so I, I, I just I want us to think about as Christians... how we approach these systems. Because I'm going to argue that the way they divide issues are not necessarily beneficial to where we're coming from. And so we have to figure out, and people are going to have different answers. People of good faith are going to have different answers as to how they engage with that. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but it's just part of the way of saying, you know, we're not... We're not of this world. And there's a, a, there really always needs to be this tension. Um, there needs to be this tension of realizing that's the case. Uh, I think I heard a little watch alarm, and we'll get towards the end. Let me make sure. Oh, the last thing I want to share, just real quick, because this is important. Um, in chapter 14, verse 6, says, then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Now, those who live on the earth, that's a technical term for whom? For those who are in rebellion. Who's the gospel for? The gospel is for, listen again, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. But those who live on the earth is a technical, technical term for what? Those in rebellion. Who is the gospel for? Those in rebellion. The church has already received the gospel. We're already in the kingdom, of, we're already kingdom of heaven people. The good news is for God's enemies. Those who are in rebellion against God. 
And God tells them, come out and come to me. The gospel is for those who are in rebellion against God. And our job, church, is not to hold it for ourselves, but to live our lives with the seal of God on our foreheads and the mark of God on our right hand because the way we see the world and the way we live our lives proclaims this eternal gospel to a world in rebellion against God because we believe that the one who has a hold of them only wants to destroy them and they are men and women created in the image of the living God and God loves them and so we love them and share this good news that God wants to save you and has provided a way through Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read about your messenger, the angel, that proclaimed the gospel to those in rebellion, help us, Almighty God, to be your messengers, proclaiming your eternal gospel to a world in rebellion. Because this is your world. These are your people. And we know you love them so much you sent your son to die for all of us so that we may have eternal life. Send us out with that gospel on our lips and in our actions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much.